Welcome to Think Aloud, where you'll hear from the people shaping arts and culture today. Together we'll consider new ideas and approach old ones from new angles to hopefully cast some light on the most exciting things happening right now in the arts. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Once upon a time, there was a multi-purpose art space on the banks of the Thames called the Southbank Centre. And inside that multi-purpose art space, there was a room called, rather unpoetically, the fifth floor function room with views that stretched out over the city. And inside that room, on this cold January morning, there was a podcast host and two guests settling in to talk about children's literature. Okay, I'm going to stop there before I give away my entire book's proposal. I'm Harriet Fitchlittle, and on this week's episode of Think Aloud, we are talking about children's books, you may have guessed. More specifically, we are talking about the question of diversity in children's literature. As in life, the default protagonist of a children's novel is a white, able-bodied boy who is up for an adventure. Think uh, William Brown from the Just William books. Think Harry Potter. Think Horrid Henry. Think about almost any children's book that comes to you off the top of your head. Why is this the case? What can be done about it? Later in the episode, we'll have Syrian author and illustrator Nadine Carden answering a burning question, which is how do you create a character for children? But before then, we're going to get into the meat of why is children's literature so lacking in diversity? What can be done about it? We are here, as I said, on the fifth floor of the South Bank Centre. And I know I bang on every episode about the ridiculous routes I take to get here. But today I came up in a lift that sang to me as I reached the fifth floor. I walked past the National Poetry Library, which is something I never knew existed. And yet it does within these four, well, more than four walls of the South Bank Centre. I went past a children's kind of book cubby where there were dads sitting and reading to their children and it was incredibly idyllic and and I just opened the door inside this quite nondescript function room and I found myself stood on a balcony in the Royal Festival Hall looking down at rehearsals of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Phew! Joining me now are children's book critic Imogen Russell-Williams and Addie Adepton, Paralympic athlete, children's TV presenter and now children's book author. His book, Battle of the Cyborg Cat, was published last year and there's another instalment, the second of three, out later in 2019. Imogen and Adi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. What a great view as well, isn't it? Yeah, I should mention, I think our listeners are probably bored of me describing how beautiful some of these rooms are. We've got a huge mural behind us and we're looking out over the London Eye. Yeah, London Eye, Houses of Parliament. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the beautiful. The weather may be grim, but the view certainly isn't. Inside, we're smiling. <laughs> I wanted to begin by asking you both briefly about your childhood reading. Did you read a lot? What books did you love? Oh, I loved reading. Uh, my parents were seriously overprotective of me and they were worried about me getting into trouble and going out in the street. So the only way I could really entertain myself was to read lots of books. And also it was a way of getting out of the house because I'd say I'd go to the library. So I read absolutely everything. I read all the children's classics like Charlotte's Web, Danny Champion of the World, Stig of the Dump. But then I got into science fiction books. And I, and then as I got older, because I wanted to impress the girls, I started reading Judy Bloom books, you know, so I was there, I read them all. Did it work? I don't know, actually. I think you'd have to ask them. But I, I learned some interesting stuff, Judy Bloom. <laughs> she writes interesting stuff. Oh, yes. She? The secrets. <laughs> yes, the secrets. Then again, maybe I won't. 
Imogen, you must have been a big reader growing up, given that you've gone on to be a children's book critic. I don't think I ever grew out of reading children's books, to be honest. (laughs) I had a brief uh, flirtation with reading, you know, ponderous Russian literature as a teenager. (laughs) To be honest, that was to impress the boys, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, not in my school. Ponderous Russian literature. On the tube, you know. That's almost like listening to inaccessible jazz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Not sure who that impresses. The, the, The thing about Judy Bloom is it kind of always felt like you were reading something that you shouldn't be reading. Yes. It always felt like it was a little bit too old. And the book that was really big was uh, Forever. Yeah. Uh, you remember that? And you're just like, wow, you know, I'm 14 and I'm reading about this stuff. I'm so grown. I've got one hair on my chest and, <laughs> and, and I'm reading Judy Bloom. I'm a man. <laughs> And I mean, I'm sure as children, you were both very discerning readers, but children aren't always the, you know, you're not looking with the critical eyes that you both have now. Were you aware when you were children that there was something a lot lacking when it came to diversity in the books that you were consuming? Funnily enough, on my side, no, no, I wasn't. Partly because I don't think it was really as much lacking in some ways as it is today. I have the world's most English sounding name, but I'm actually (laughs) half Indian. And I think my parents and my folks did quite a good job of sort of scattering around the the books that just did have protagonists of colour as well as, as white protagonists on the cover. And that wasn't really a big deal. The canonical literature, the more grown up literature I was, I came to be aware, was really, really lacking, but not the kids stuff so much. No. I think for me, you know, you never look at books, as you say, in that sort of critical sense. Uh, although, you know, I expected all my books as a seven-year-old to have perfect iambic pentameter and, you know, haikus and all of that stuff. But you no, mean no, you no. didn't? <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, you, you, you don't... I mean, you never look at a book as a six, seven-year-old and think, oh, there's not enough black or Indian characters or Chinese characters in it. You just look at it for the, the, the content. But I think what was more important is how it affected you subconsciously. Even though I wasn't looking for specific characters in my books, I suddenly started to get a perception that certain people did certain things. That main protagonists, that strong characters, that hero characters were white, were middle class, spoke in a certain way, dressed in a certain way. And even though I wouldn't say when I was reading a book, I'd be like, damn, why hasn't that guy got a caliper or why isn't he in a wheelchair or why isn't there some cerebral palsy character here? I think subconsciously what it did, what it said to me as I was growing up, as I got older, is it affected my confidence in terms of when I looked at bigger roles in society, I didn't see myself as a person who could make it into those roles. For a long time in my life, I've had imposter syndrome. I've always, uh, I've been fortunate enough to do some amazing things, but I've always thought, Am I really worthy of doing this? I'm quite jammy to have got there because I haven't seen anyone before me. And if I, if Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, I mean, if Charlie was someone who was blind or in a wheelchair, God knows what impact that would have had. Right, because it's not like books are the only place where you get these certain messages from about what you can or can't do, but what you're saying is that books could have been a place where you might have got a different message 
And mm. that's, well, maybe you can describe the cover of the book that we've got in front of us. Oh, it's a splendid <laughs> uh, cover. I mean, fantastically drawn and depicted. So it's the cover of my book, Addie's Amazing Addie Ventures, Battle of the Cyborg Cat. And, you know, you've got the main protagonist, Addie, who is the cyborg cat flying through the air, dressed in a sort of superhero costume, bright yellow gloves. And the thing that I really enjoy about this, I go to a lot of schools and I do a lot of talks. And um, one of the first things I say to them is, what do you think of the book cover? And they love it. They love the action. They love the way it just jumps out at you. Um, but it, they also pick out that what may be seen as a juxtaposition of the fact that you've got this action-packed superhero flying through the air, but he's got a caliper on. Yeah, you know, so you've got these two different worlds. People normally never usually associate disability with being a superhero. And it's not just that he's got a caliper on, it's that there's kind of electricity coming out of it, isn't there? That's and that's what makes him into this um into cyborg, cyborg superhero. Yeah, cyborg superhero. It's kind of I mean, as I've said, the book has always been loosely based on my my childhood and when I was growing up I was always I was lucky I was good at sport. But it used to surprise a lot of people who met me for the first time because I walked very awkwardly. I always used to say I walked like um, C-3PO on Star Wars after he'd trod in a large piece of chewing gum. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was a really awkward walk. The last thing you'd think of someone who walked that awkwardly and, was, and had my build would that be that I'd be incredibly athletic. But I was, and I love that contrast. And my life has always been about that. And I think that's what I wanted to get in the book. Not to mention that when we were just thinking maybe about classics children's literature, there is a hell of a lot of stuff to get over when it comes to narratives and disability. You think about the secret garden, what goes on there, the idea that disability will be effaced. And it's a challenge cured. to overcome, yes. isn't it? Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. If yeah. you pray hard enough, um, <laughs> if you become a, a good enough person in some unspecified way, then actually it's not the way you live, it's a stage along the way. I can only imagine that mm. that was something that internalising was an additional layer of problematic and crap. Oh yeah, I, I, I think um, there's so many subliminal messages that come out of books that affect you in ways that you don't know. And I think it's not just race, I think it's gender. At some point in everyone's lives, you feel like an outsider. It's trying to find a book that has you or something, a character that you can recognize and cling to. And that idea of having a disability is something that holds you back and something that you need to, to pray to get rid of. <laughs> Reminds me actually of when I was a kid, I was desperate not to have a disability. Desperate. When I think back at now, it's quite sad. I used to pray every morning my parents were very religious and they'd give me the um, the Lord's Prayer and I'd pray every morning and I'd be like, you know, God, make me better, make my leg stronger, you know, and I'd look at my leg and, and think, yeah, I'm going to be, it's, it's going to work because I wanted to be like the other kids at school. And it took a long, long time for me to get over that. And I think if I'd seen a character like myself or read about a character like myself in a book, then all of that praying would have gone out the window. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying, you know, each to own. And I still pray every now and again, especially when West Ham are playing on the weekends. They, they definitely need a prayer or two. Although at the moment we're doing fine. But um, I think 
that it really had an impact on me on my my perception of self because I never saw positive images of myself in books. Imogen, you haven't written a book. We were talking earlier about how you're on the opposite side of this debate. <laughs> <laughs> so editor! We've got the editor and the writer facing off against across the table, and I'm hopefully somewhere in the middle. Um, but you have bought a pile of books with you yeah <laughs> <laughs> open your bag up and apologize for the yeah the number of times that you'd collected um maybe let's just start with the top one in terms of books that you have come across recently that you think are doing something better i'm particularly keen on this one it's called asher and the spirit bird by jasbinder bilan it won the uh, times children's fiction competition in 2017 and it's just it does such a lot of what I want. I mean, what your book does, Adi, and... I'm scared now. <laughs> I'm just going to critique This is like me. live crit. <gasps> no, 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 no. Deep breaths, deep breaths. It's all, it's all great. And I just want to do a little wonder on back to the cover of your book, in yes. fact, if I may, is you've got this incredible dynamic image bursting out with a bionic crackling with excitement and superhero leg and also quite good like et bikes going on in the background but also you've got very ordinary street in the background and i really like the (laughs) the relationship it's subtle it's it's fading into the background Mm. it's not a graphic novel completely outside of a reading child's reality it's related to home asher and the spirit bird does something very different but it still takes what I consider very classic children's literature element, which is a quest to go and find a missing parent and to bring him home. I mean, when you set off on a quest, you usually need provisions, um, you need someone to go with you, you need a plan, you're obviously going to come across a long, dark tea time of the soul along your way. Um, (laughs) Apologies to Douglas Adams. (laughs) All of this is going to to feature. But what Jasbinder has done here it's such a an Indian sensibility. Reading it with the sort of, I don't know, in the, in the mindset of being a half Indian child, it just makes me so excited at the thought of, you know, we can have the cyborg cat superhero. We can also have Asha with her mountain eyes who sets off as the hero of a, of a quest. And it's interweaving mm. Hindu belief in this really light touch way with contemporary India as well. I really loved it. Sounds like a beautiful story, yeah. actually. Oh, it is, it I, is, it I, is. I, I really want to read it. And I, I think what I love about... The great thing about books is they can just take you to different worlds and you can see through different people's eyes. And, and that's what I really, really love. You know, it just, why I loved it, I was this young kid growing up in Plasto, East London, in this concrete jungle. And I could go into a book and I could be in Africa. I could be in India. I could be all over the world. And that's the beauty of it. And that's why we need more diverse yeah, books. exactly. I did a really undignified squirm as though I was desperate for the loo just then, but this was because... <laughs> it did look a bit odd there. <laughs> this is because I got very overexcited and wanted to talk about windows and mirrors. So I think it's Emily Style in an essay called Curriculum as Window and Mirror first brought up the idea of window and mirror. Books present either a window in which you get to see into someone else's life, you get to walk in their shoes, or they mirror a reality which is familiar back to you. Wow. Um, There are a lot of kids who see way too many mirrors, and there are 
so many kids who never get to see a mirror at all. Now, if you look through a window, you get to develop your empathy muscles. You get to go and experience what it's like perhaps to have a, a really difficult and traumatic experience or perhaps just to have different favourite foods, different home customs and to see that these things are in no way scary. Mm. They're a counterbalance to sort of tabloid alarmist narratives and all of the stuff which has landed us in the very rude word that we are currently dealing with yeah. um, in terms of Brexit. Um, <laughs> so a window book for a child would be something like this book that I'm holding which is Adeline Yenma's Chinese Cinderella which I bought in because I was talking to my mum last night about kind of the books that I read growing up which weren't mirrors but which were windows and this book which is about it's kind of a it's young child young adult about a semi-autobiographical about a girl growing up in a very difficult abusive family in China would be a window book and the thing about mirrors is that for the children who don't get to have the experience mm. of reading a mirror book. When they do, perversely enough, the mirror becomes a door. The mirror allows the child to have permission to tell their own story, to see that protagonists are black, are Indian, are biracial, mm. come from everywhere, have disabilities, have difficulties. There is not just one way to be a hero. You're twisting my melon with all these metaphors. And stuff. <laughs> Sorry. Doors and windows <laughs> and yeah, oh, it's good. No, but it, it's it's great. I've never looked at a book in that way as a window or or a mirror, and it kind of makes me think about my childhood because I was very attracted to window books. I wanted to be taken from my world and taken somewhere else. I, I yes, I do. I, I it would have been nice to see something that reflected me as well, and that gave me a stronger self perception. But maybe that was something it said something about myself that I didn't want to see myself. Is I remember when I used to walk to school. I avoided seeing myself in mirrors because when I looked at myself in mirrors, it made me, it was the only time that I realized that I was disabled. So maybe I needed to see more mirror books as well to, to help me overcome those, those ideas. And it wouldn't have taken so long for me to become comfortable with who I am as a person. And to a certain extent, children do just want to spend a lot of time escaping into yeah. ridiculous, we all want crazy to escape, worlds, we? right? It's just if you're missing that other component. Yes, exactly. And some children are more escapist in their reading tendencies than others. I think I was quite like you. I was keen on, on the windows mm. um, and wanted to go clambering through them. Right um, now, Bill Gates will be loving this. <laughs> talking about windows. Yeah. Racking up there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that you can also, for instance, you can have have different kinds of shuffling um, through the book yes, pile I'm sorry, here yeah. shuffling through the book pile uh, as is my as is my little way this is a book by Jim Garvin called Blackberry Blue and Other Fairy Tales and I'm fond of it oh. because it subverts the idea that there's one way to be fairy tale beautiful there's one way to be fairy tale magic there's one way to be a sort of Charles Perrault very good girl or to come out ha with a happy ending my point is that 
if you've got different levels of representation in different genres, then you can have a mixture of window and mirror as well. Mm. You can have some of the enjoyment and escapism of fantasy, but at the same time, it can resonate more deeply with you because you recognize elements of your own experience within those stories. A sort of tinted window. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the metaphors. <laughs> you've joined me. Yes. Love it. A high five from the writer and I, the editor. I, I Who thought it would end this way? <laughs> bringing us together, yeah. you know? Children's books are bringing you together. Nice. I realise, I mean, this conversation's gone so fast and in so many interesting directions that we haven't kind of actually done the nuts and bolts of why we're talking about this and why it's important in terms of the numbers. I mean, mm. I was shocked when I was doing my research and saw this survey, the Reflecting Reality Survey, which came out uh, last year, saying that in 2000, 2017, less than 1% of children's books had black, Asian and minority ethnic protagonists. 4% had a character, kind of like a named character <laughs> from a BME community. And you're far more likely to find a book whose protagonist was an animal than someone who wasn't white. I mean, Imogen, you wrote about this for Times Literary Supplement. I did. Front I did. page, I believe. Um, <laughs> when it came out. Uh, it was a very beautiful front page. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was not down to me. But I was really pleased that, that the TLS gave it the prominence they did because this is a matter which is very close to my heart. I think that statistic staggered an awful lot of people. There are an awful lot of very well-intentioned and well-meaning and maybe slightly slow-moving mm. folk in children's publishing who will have thought, well, I know we're not where we should be, but we're getting there. And the fact that Britain's far worse than America. For goodness sake. It's nuts, isn't it? For it's goodness nuts. sake. I'm mm. sorry. Okay, something between 25% and 32% of school kids are black and minority Asian. Okay, that is quite a discrepancy mm. between, even if you go with the lowest figure, if you go with 25% versus 1% of protagonists. Mm. I've seen in my daughter's school library, I've seen when there is a book by Sita Brahmakari which features a Somali protagonist, the area where my daughter goes to school, there are a lot of, there's a big Somali community. And I've seen that book get read to shreds yeah. because it was the one book on yeah. the shelf that reflected that reality it will not do no or maybe stick of the dump but that was more probably because it was just really hairy hairy <laughs> you know and and and, 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 the, and it was always when you read books when you're younger they were seen as exotic you know which was like real, really nonsense so when i when i wrote this book I, I just suddenly realized and as i was writing i was realizing you know as i want everyone to think i could be that person yeah these crazy wild low numbers which are worse than kind of publishing as a whole which is in itself very bad the only kind of theory that i've come across and i was wondering whether you think it holds any weight either of you is that children can't talk hmm. or for the most part i mean no, i do know something about children i know they learn to talk at a certain point Never. um but, <laughs> but they, they can't kind of form a critical opinion they're not the people making decisions about what books get published so children's publishing is inherently more conservative than other sectors of publishing because people the only way that people can work out what's going to sell is by going on what has sold before yeah and that this leads to children's publishing being particularly particularly bad it's true that children are not the ones with purchasing power but conservatism begets conservatism mm. and that there are a hell of a lot of 
of parents who would actually quite like to have books that deal, for instance, with Afro-Caribbean hair picture books that deal with something which is a completely ordinary part of everyday experience mm -hmm. for little boys and girls. And yet, I mean, to pick up your word, exotic, that's just <laughs> like, this is apparently something that, that doesn't happen no. in an awful lot of picture books. Then there's the sense of, oh, well, no, the, the, the books that do deal with this kind of experience are outliers. They're kind of special in some way. They're set apart without that sense of this is not separate to... I don't know, a mainstream, a constructed narrative of the mainstream. Nobody is going to have that sense of shared experience and the, this reflects part of me and this is interesting and this is something that I'd never thought of before. Mm. But for whatever reason, I now feel that it's a possibility for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree. And I think um, part of the problem is the the pool of writers um uh, the pool of people who think they can uh, can write i think there's a lot of kids or a lot of people growing up who don't even see writing as a career because it's never been pushed in in, in their direction but they tend to come from the same background yes so you'll write about the same things yeah what we need to be doing is trying to reflect society more. And good Agreed. things good things are happening. So literally this morning, meeting in the middle of January, uh, a bookshop which was initially started as a pop-up by the publishing house Knights of, uh, Read the 1%, um, has secured its crowdfunding for... Awesome. A, Amazing. Yeah, awesome. Well <laughs> done, Brixton. everybody. Um, you were involved, I, well, I've seen you in the video yes. for the crowdfunding yeah. campaign. You must have been involved to a certain extent. Yeah, that, tell, me, tell, tell me about the bookshop. What's the idea behind it? Well, this is a concrete thing, isn't it, that people are doing to kind of bricks and mortar. <laughs> yes, bricks and mortar. Oh, I very like that. good. Nice. Did, you have, did you have that ready? Yes. No. Pull <laughs> that out your back pocket. <laughs> What's the tagline? Is the one percent, isn't it? Those protagonists that normally do not get that opportunity to to feature in in books and. Uh, they invited me to one of their pop-up bookstores in Brixton on Cold Harbour Lane and it was fantastic. There was loads of people coming in, great range of books there with fascinating front covers that you don't normally see and just, it was just exciting. You know, it felt to me that I'd suddenly, rather than going to a supermarket which only sold apples, I've gone into a supermarket that's selling uh, that uh, a whole smorgasbord of, of, of stuff. Apples, vegetables, pears, the whole lot. It's amazingly heartening that. To slightly lower the tone by quoting Wayne's World too, but if you book them, they, they will, will come. come. <laughs> right, and, the, and, the, <laughs> and this it. shop, which has kind of come out of nowhere, like really put itself on the map, just like the passion of supporters and some people who had a good idea will now hopefully prove I mean what what did you say in your TLS article you compared having a black or brown face on the cover of a book to oh a slow puncture a slow puncture the sales equivalent of a slow puncture was what this the commercial is, yes. departments of publishing this is the sort thought. of received wisdom that mm. no one obviously yeah. will actually fess up and say but it's there in what is is unsaid um but it is very naughty word. It, say it, it, say it. It is bollocks, okay? Yes. There. I said it in the she festival hall and everything. Boom. It really is. Um, it's absolute tripe and pig swill. Um, you only have to look at how astonishingly well books like, say, Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give and Elizabeth Acevedo's um, The Poet X have been doing in the US. There is 
appetite for these books and we just have to be being as imaginative as mm. knights of are being and saying this is this is great stuff this is for everybody to read this <laughs> this supermarket is for everybody to come into and yeah. marvel but maybe especially for the kids who have always been pears and there's nothing but apples there for them <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that you mentioned uh, The Hate You Give, yeah. which is yeah, the Sanji Thomas book, mm. kind of which sets Black Lives Matter in the context of an American high school. I was thinking about that and I was wondering whether a book like that will have a big impact because what we've seen in the film industry, for example, over the last couple of years with things like Black Panther, but then also um, A Stitch in Time, yeah. is that you can have people who aren't white on screen and have these huge blockbuster yeah. successes, you know, two of the highest grossing movies last yep. year. Do you think a book like The Hate You Give has started to do that for young adult fiction? I mean, Hell yeah, yeah. for goodness sake. I, um, so maybe I've, children's I've, literature needs that moment of... I think that in a sort of slow, agonising, treacly kind of way is having that moment. The States are definitely ahead of where we are, but no one can deny the success of The Hate You Give and the, the, the power of the movie and then the springboard effect, people seeing the film and then reading the book and then, I mean, also her, her, her new book on the come up is as good if not better and I heartily commend it to you all mm. but I've heard from librarians who work in secondary schools that people said about the hate you give that students said about the hate you give I didn't know books like this were allowed to be in the library mm. that sends shivers down my spine of excitement do you, do you know something that I find very interesting is with a lot of books that deal with difficult subjects it tends to not be the children or the, the readers that have the problem with it. It's more the parents. Oh, yeah. And I think it's the parents are worried, how do we deal with the awkward questions? you're a parent and do you ever worry about those sort of things and stuff I mean I do but a thousand times rather my daughter was reading a book which brought up something that we could then discuss mm -hmm. rather than that she was making up her own mind based on sort of the the utter crap that's peddled in the <laughs> playground I can't believe you're just you're just swearing you're just filth all the time I, I mean know. I thought my I'd be more sweary out, than my you my secret's out you I am imagine. a complete potty mouth wash your <laughs> mouth out you know I, I i started my book in quite a controversial way you know the first the first page is quite a tough start to the book and I, it's something that really did happen when i was younger it's an experience that happened and i know there were parents who were worried about that start and worried about whether it would be okay for their kids to read it but part of the reason why I wrote this book is because I wanted parents and children to have a conversation. Yeah I couldn't agree with you more and I think it sometimes sometimes people are victims of the best possible intentions when they don't want to engage say with with a really hurtful racist slur mm -hmm. or with with something that just feels unmentionable with say ableist language which feels incredibly outdated now and so they unwittingly just sort of create like a sense of secrecy mm. and well we can't really discuss that i want frank discussions about why things are unacceptable yeah. the history of where they came from yeah. the pain they caused yeah. where they came from in that way and therefore why they are now unacceptable it's brilliant because that's the way we will progress yeah. as a society because 
we have so many hidden and pent up anxieties because we haven't had the chance to talk about this exactly. as, as kids with our parents. And I think it's just so, so important that we do have that conversation, however tough it is. And also I wanted kids to know that life is tough, shit happens. When children never have to deal with racist abuse or ableist abuse, then we can take out the beginning of your book because it's you can't shut children away from the realities of life. Um, I mean, you can, obviously, you can feed them pure pabulum and stuff that, that is entirely escapist, but it's mm. not And then nutritious. they become Jacob's re-smog. But, you know. <laughs> well, so you're, you're looking at this question from one point of view, which is, you know, what do we do when, why is it so useful to read books like Addie's, kind of have conversations around what's going on in those books? Something I wanted to ask you both is what you think should be done or how books should be approached that are really dodgy. What do you do when you want to read your child or niece or nephew, the classics that your parents read you as a child and they're full of, well, I think you just basically gave a list of things you might encounter. Yeah. And you know, I'm not gonna go for the breakfast TV tagline of like, should we burn all the classic yeah. children's books because Obviously not, but like, how what how do you approach it? I have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a book burning pile yes. in your back garden. No, okay. So let's take a famous lady, Ina Blyton. There's a lot of her stuff that's been reissued with inverted commas sensitive editing, which makes me spit feathers. For instance, in the Faraway Tree, there was a group of little supernatural bods called brownies and then they've been reimagined as elves. This makes me very cross. Brownies has never been a racist term. <laughs> Brownies <laughs> are... It's a biscuit, isn't it? They're, 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 they could be a, a delicious comestible, biscuit. exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, or they could be a kind of hobgoblin. It has nothing to do with their colouring. It's an English folklore thing. It's not to do with ethnicity. That sounds overcautious, but presumably they've also corrected things where you would say, oh, yeah, fair play, that's a bit... No. Off. My experience is different to most people's experience because my daughter is dyslexic and therefore I'm still reading stuff to her and with her at a point at which um, if people have kids who are free readers, they're just going to go and navigate it themselves. But actually, I want the Inner Blyton editions which sort of say slightly dubious things about darker skin colour or use queer in a way that mm. we have moved past because then I want to have the conversations mm. um, as awkward and as kind of oh my goodness here we go again. Maybe the problem is the fact that we use the word awkward they, they should just be conversation exactly you know I, and I think that's maybe the thing that makes parents heart skip a beat mm. that awkward it's difficult I hope I have the the courage and the language and the emotional maturity to be able to sit down with my child and say, let's let's unpick this. Yes. It's either that or I send them to their to their room really early and tell them never to come back down and with no dinner or anything oh, like that. Oh, it them. works for me. Yeah, there you go. Punishment. <laughs> In a minute, we're going to move on to this episode's burning question. In this episode, we've got the children's author, Nadine Carden, who has published 15 children's books, answering the question of how you create a character. So I thought to kind of end our conversation here, not that I particularly want to do that, <laughs> um, I'd ask both of you, Addy and Imogen, what you look for in a children's book character. 
either when you were children or now maybe the two are one and the same as imagine you were saying you never grew out (laughs) I think to be honest I yeah I'm still probably that deeply dorky child (laughs) oh yes I like a character who's flawed I like a character who's distinct who's definitely not a sort of insert yourself here blank I do like characters who are funny especially if they're female I like it if they can get angry and that's not shown as a crime yeah I echoed that in terms of a flawed character. I think someone who's perfect can just, can, they can be annoying. I like challenging characters as well. Yeah, I I kind of, I really got into um, Marvel comics actually. And in terms of, you know, when you look at characters like someone like Daredevil, who has this inner darkness that they're constantly um, battling with. And I like the fact that, um, you know, Stanley came up with Spider-Man is a teenage superhero who's dealing with puberty <laughs> and having superhero strength and powers as well. And then when I hop back to Judy Bloom when I was reading um, Super Fudge where, you know. You're still you, trying to impress those no, high school I'm, girls. I'm still, still trying, no, don't tell my wife that. They're you know, all impressed. In <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's kind of, she, um, she had, uh, was it a little brother or a little sister that was just just absolutely annoying that was her parents favorite and I read the book and it made me feel emotional it made me feel angry and those are the best type of characters when you just put the book down uh, in anger and then you pick it back up and go okay I want to find out what they do next well, Nadine Kadan is an illustrator as well as an author so she's got a slightly different perspective on it uh, we're gonna hear from her now <laughs> I always start um, designing a character with a sketch. I think visually. So I do lots of sketches, I do, I add colors, and then slowly I start to discover my character. Uh, looking at those sketches, I look um, for hours at the drawing and I try to think, what is this character's personality? Is he or she um, clumsy, for example? Do they like to stay asleep for long hours or do they stay up at night? Are they energetic? Um, even the close process also takes me a lot of sketches and a lot of uh, drawings to realize what this character is, is wearing and why is wearing this clothes. Um, so I think visually and um, the more positions I, I illustrate, the more scenes I illustrate, the more I know my character. Now, the reader's response is always a surprise for me and I really enjoy this surprise. I'm never sure. Uh, what their kids' reactions gonna be? So, for example, when I uh, did the Jasmine sneeze, there are two main characters. There are the cat, which is inspired by my cat. Um, the same colors and even the same personality, chubby and lazy and naughty. Uh, so it was uh, this one was easy to create. But when I did the the Jasmine spirit, uh, it took me um, a long process to decide on her age and her personality. So at the end I decided that the jasmine spirit is not um, uh, an old woman like 
we would expect a spirit to be I created her to be a, a 10 years old or 8 years old little girl who gets angry easily and forgive easily and she's playful um, and uh, when the book came out I was surprised that kids would come and tell me that they really sympathize with Harun and they found that the jasmine spirit is a bit mean for punishing Harun and, and making him sneeze for so much so it's always a surprise I didn't expect that I didn't f- think that kids will find her mean but I was so happy with this reaction and uh, that's what's so beautiful about publishing a book um, discovering and, and, and collecting the reaction and learning more about uh, uh, what kids like and what kids don't like And that's all for this week's episode. Thank you very much to my guests, Addy. Thank you. Who you can catch at Imagine Festival on February 23rd. It's in the Royal Festival Hall. And you'll be reading from the book that we've got in front of us. Yes, we're reading from Addy's Amazing Ad Adventures, Battle of the Cyborg Cat. Imagine you won't be on stage, but probably will be in the audience. <laughs> swearing in the audience. Be in the audience swearing and booing <laughs> and losing all your contracts as a children's book reviewer. And eventually being escorted off the premises. But until then, uh, we can follow you on Twitter at ImogenRW. Thank you. And I'll try not to swear on Twitter. Oh, that's what Twitter's for. <laughs> Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Now you can listen to more of what goes on here in the South Bank Centre's book podcast. In the most recent episode, they are talking to the winner of the T.S. Eliot Poetry Prize just announced, Hannah Sullivan. You can find that plus other episodes of Think Aloud at southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts. You can subscribe to us and you can rate or review us. That would be appreciated. You can also see all the events that will be going on at Imagine Festival over the February half term on our website, southbankcentre.co.uk. 